0: Hello, and welcome to the latest podcast from the Center for the Study of the Book at Oxford University. My name's Adam Smyth, and I'm delighted to be here with Dr. Paul Nash in the Bodleian's Hand Printing Workshop at the Story Museum in Oxford. Uh, Paul is a bibliographer and a librarian and a composer and a writer and the Bodleian's printing specialist. That's right, Paul? That's right. A fair summary? Yes, well, more or less. Yes, Yes, so far. And we are standing in the workshop, and I can see lots of presses, lots of printing presses. How many have we got here? Eight, nine, something like this? Yes, there
1: are are seven large ones, plus several small tabletop presses. Wow.
0: And we're going to talk a little bit, briefly, about the process of printing, the different stages one went through, and um, talk our way through some of that, I think. Yes, That sounds good to you? Absolutely. So where do we begin? What are we looking at? What what have we got here? Well, what we
1: have here, um, we have a range of presses which are nearly all Victorian uh, iron hand presses. We have a number of Albion presses and a Colombian press, all from the period between about 1835 and 1900. Mm. We also have a much older wooden hand press, which is um, very hard to date, but probably um, from the second half of the 18th century, Mm. which I'll do a little demonstration on later and you'll hear the noise it makes, which is really... Quite extraordinary.
0: How close is that
1: eighteenth
0: that, um, century hand press to presses that would have come before? Is it pretty much the same? Pretty much structure? the same,
1: mechanically much the same. The main difference is that that press has an iron screw rather than a carved wooden screw, which the earliest presses would have had. Although we think that iron screws probably came in quite early, so around 1500. Right, right. Okay, so take me to your station. Yes, well, the first thing I'm going to do, because we are actually... Um, we have to have something to print. The first thing I'm going to do is take you to the composing room right. and we'll set some type. So if you'd like to come through to the Great.
0: room. Here we go. Ah, so type, lots of yes. type.
1: Now, I'm standing at a uh, type frame, uh, and in front of me are two cases, the uppercase and lowercase, containing the type. Now, in order to set some type, I need a composing stick. OK, so you've got the composing
0: stick in your left hand.
1: That's right, yes. Yes, um, professional compositors would always have held it that way. Uh, and I begin by putting a strip of lead into the stick, which is a strip of type metal that's cut, um, cast to a, um, into a ribbon and then cut to the same length as the measure of your stick. And then you begin setting by picking out pieces of type with your right hand. So if I set something very simple, like my name, I begin with the uppercase P. Which
0: is so taking the P, the uppercase, the capital P from the uppercase. Right.
1: And placing it in the stick at the, um, the end nearest to me, with the face of the type visible and also visible is a nick which Mm -hmm. is a little mark on one side of the type which shows which way up it goes. So I then follow with the lowercase a Okay, so you. right, you're moving
0: very speedily around I'm this. actually
1: moving very slowly by, by, uh, <laughs> by professional standards. But uh, I, I, your hand, after a while, naturally moves to the right box to pick yeah. up the character. So you need to
0: trust that the right bits of type are in the right compartments, because you're not checking each one as you go, No, presumably. that's right.
1: You, you no, know you're not. So when you pick it up, you will know if it's likely to be the wrong character by its width and weight. Mm-hmm. But if it's about the right width and weight, you wouldn't usually look at it to check it's the right character. And of course, you do get what's called foul case, where mm-hmm. someone has put a character in the wrong box particularly when you have, as we do here sometimes, children working in the uh, workshop. We have quite a lot of foul case. But happily the word Paul has come out all right, and I'll yep. put a space in now, and then set Nash.
0: I always love the fact that a space is a, is a physical material thing yes. in your setting.
1: Yes, you, it's, it's not, a, not just a blank, it's, it's a physical um, piece of type which just doesn't have a letter on the end.
0: Yeah, so we've got the N.
1: The A, and of course we're setting here in a, a pair of cases that is um, arranged as it would have been before 1800. So we have the long s available mm-hmm. so we have the long s and the round s and if I was setting my name before 1800 I would have used the long s mm-hmm. and the H and that's foul case there's a space in the H
0: oh, right. yeah, someone so gets fired
1: Paul they, well <laughs> if they're an apprentice they just get hit okay uh, there's uh, the name Paul Nash now set and because uh, I, I discovered a long time ago that my name's a very good example of a problem in typesetting, that when you have the long s, and you put it next to an H, the um, the kern, the overhanging terminal of the S, hits the top, the Mm. ascender of the H. And so, in fact, you can't put long S and H together. Ah. What you Mm. have to do is take them out again and replace those two characters with a single character, the SH ligature, which is the long S and the H cast together on a single piece of type.
0: I see, I see.
1: So now I've set the name, seven pieces of type, eight characters plus a space into the stick.
0: And how do we stop that
1: shifting around well, in the stick? Every line has to be spaced so it fits the stick neatly. And uh, in this case, if that were just—if um, I were just setting my names at the foot of a poem, imagine I've written one, printed it—you would just fill into the end of the line with spacing. So I shall do that now with these large quads, which uh, are much larger blanks than I've already used between the word. And you can tell when your line is tight enough by gently lifting the line up in the stick. Mm -hmm. And if it flops back under its own weight, as this one does, Mm -hmm. then it's not yet tight enough. So Mm -hmm. I need to adjust that further to make it tight. And that's part of the skill of the compositor, is choosing um, a selection of spaces that make the spacing both tight and even. Mm -hmm. That's not quite right yet either. It still needs a tiny adjustment.
0: And So in time, one gets expert at this kind of judgment finding the right spaces to fill the space
1: and compositors would have served a seven-year apprenticeship normally and and Mm -hmm. during the course of that they'd have learned this skill that's the the main skill Mm -hmm. they'd have learned i've just Mm -hmm. about managed to do this now Mm -hmm. took me a while
0: do you find yourself thinking in type as a result of this i mean it's a question i've often wondered about how are thinking about words and writing and language changes if 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 the medium is not the pen hovering above the paper but but the no i don't i don't
1: find that um, I find myself writing in type or thinking in type but I do find myself reading in type whenever ah. I read a printed book I do, do tend to think about how it was composed whether it was composed on a computer or, or with, with metal type I I'm afraid I, I can see now the, the way the letter forms relate
0: and so you imagine what the labour and the process behind uh, it uh,
1: yes the labour the process and when I see something wrong hmm. I can imagine What's caused that? Mm -hmm. And of course, the thing that strikes you, particularly looking at books from before about the end of the 19th century, is how irregular the spacing in prose often is Mm -hmm. and how that was um, achieved by... um, putting in a space here and there just to make the line fit neatly into the stick. And presumably varying spelling yes.
0: as well, the Y or the IE That's option. That's
1: true of the earlier period, yes. Yes, you would have a number of um, uh, options before, well, certainly before 1700 to, to alter spelling in order to make the line fit
0: better. And so the compositor there really is having a lot of agency about how well, the text appears. Yes, um, at that, that period, use.
1: absolutely, yes. They were, they were fairly free to adapt spelling, to put letters in, mm-hmm. to take vowels out, mm-hmm. um, as long as the, um, the word was still legible. Um, they could spell it in a various a variety of ways in order to make it fit well. I wonder
0: what the uh, authors thought of that. I mean, the, the sort of for the early modern period, the kind of iconic uh, author is Shakespeare, who, who supposedly distanced himself from print. But then we have Johnson, who famously was circling and hovering and causing all kinds of hassle yes. for the compositors.
1: Yes, I suspect that even Johnson, who was, a, who was a bit of a worrier about these things, didn't worry too much about the spellings, right. um, as long as his sense was conveyed correctly. Mm-hmm. I think he, he didn't, mm-hmm. and I suspect the same is true of readers as well. Mm-hmm. That they didn't care too much about how words were spelled, or indeed how they were spelled. Mm-hmm. as long as the, 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 the text was um, legible and, and readable in that uh, intellectual sense.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, but it's interesting when we think of what word to choose when we write, space, and the amount of space filled is is, is rarely a key variable. Well, when you're setting type in that way, it's absolutely crucial. It's driving the
1: decisions that they make. Yes. And it would it's particularly true if you're one of those rare people who actually composes in the sense of writes your text while you're setting the type, which some people did. Um, there was a famous... Um, Editor of an Australian periodical who would write his editorials standing at the typecase, wow. and that must have made a, a, an important difference when he was working there, deciding, you know, if he needed a little bit more space in the line, he just could change one adjective to another.
0: Wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. So what are we? So we've got Paul Nash in yeah. type set.
1: Uh, I shall put another lead onto the top of it so that the line is firm, and um, this is just one line, but uh, if I was a professional compositor, I would go on and set three or four right. um, so that the um, stick was um, getting quite heavy, and then I should take the line out into a galley. Now, I'll do that so you can hear the sound. So I'm placing the type in its stick on the galley, and then I'm sliding the line out. Slide over and down into position and if I was setting more I would add each stick for as I would finished it. Well the next phase of course is to go to the press. Right. So we'll go to the wooden press. Okay so this
0: is the earliest one you've got here, yes, the 18th right. century one.
1: Yes uh, and um, mechanically very much as presses would have been between about 1450 and 1800. They didn't change much in principle uh, and what we have here is a large form imposed uh, for an octavo sheet um, with eight pages on it uh, and the next thing we have to do of course is to ink it in yes. order to take a, a proof uh and for that we need to roll out some ink so if we'd like to just come over to the ink slab should be we where we be wearing any protective clothing here do uh, you well, the only, the only thing you might need to wear is an apron really okay. um, and if, if you were worried about if you were doing it professionally you'd probably wear a hat of some sort as well to protect right. your hair from uh ink. Uh, quite often in the past it would have been just an ordinary um, cloth hat of some sort. But um, in the 19th century it became traditional for newspaper printers to make a, a paper hat from the newspaper perhaps they printed the day before. Really? The so they're wearing the yesterday's? Yes. They're wearing yesterday's news and then discard it at the end of the day and make another one the next wow. day. Wow. Right. So have got a bit of ink here that's come out of a It's a extremely thick isn't it? Is yes, it's very thick. It's much thicker than writing ink. And I'll spread a little bit onto the surface of the
0: of the so we're spreading this with a knife table. onto the surface. And now we am going to
1: roll it with a rubber roller. And of course, this was how it was done in the 19th century and later. Mm-hmm. But before the 19th century, instead of uh, rollers, they had inking balls or yeah. inking dabbers, which were curved, sort of semicircular. Um, leather pads, which um, were packed with um, something hard but fairly yielding, like wool or horsehair, uh, and those were used to transfer the ink from the stone onto the type. Worked in much the same way. Were they cleaned? Cleaned in urine or uh, they well, in they, urine? That's right. They were. Um, it wasn't so much the cleaning, but it was it was the retanning because ah. when, when you um, use them for ink and then clean them and then use them again, they would become hard very quickly. Right. And so, in order to keep them soft, so that they would um, cover the type easily. They were regularly re-tanned, and usually at the end of each day, they would take off the leather covering and lay it in a bath of urine to do that. And when you came in the next day, the leather would be lovely and soft again, but it would suffer from a bad smell, unfortunately.
0: Something for the apprentice yeah. to take care of.
1: Well, yes, and in fact, um, the, the balls themselves did tend to smell um, very badly, and that's probably one of the reasons why, in the end, they were very glad to get rid of them once uh, rollers were invented.
0: This is very calm... Um, peaceful space it's a beautiful day and the sun's coming through the windows. Yes. but presumably most print shops would be noisy yes. the middle of a city, busy- but noisy and frenzy and stressful yes. with book yes. fairs looming and deadlines and
1: yes, absolutely we must remember that printing was a profession and people worked at it in order to make money and uh, make a living and the, the faster and harder you worked the more money you made. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you didn't work fast or hard you would go out of business. Mm-hmm. so it was it was very much a, a, a business. Uh, and it was, a, it was hard work, um, mm-hmm. usually you would serve a seven year apprenticeship, and then when you reached about the age of 20, 21, you would become a journeyman and work either as a compositor or a printer, and you might, if you were lucky, have a working life of 30 years, but that was pretty mm-hmm. good going. It was mm-hmm. a very hard, demanding physical work. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, so it's, you're still rolling the ink out. Yeah, so I'm beating it. That's getting it to a stage where it's, uh, it's ready to print, getting it um, evenly spread and just slightly warmed up. Mm-hmm. And you can hear and feel when it's ready, and this is just about ready now. It also has a lovely um, sort of moleskin texture to it. It Yeah, and a great acoustic as well. Yes, yes, it sounds nice as well. Right, let's take this back to the press, and I'm applying the ink to the type.
0: So you're rolling it across the type. Yes. This looks precarious and dangerous. And I imagine, if to get back to our discussion of things going wrong earlier, you could easily pick up
1: a well, piece you can, of type. Well, you can pick up a piece of type if the form isn't locked up properly, right. which means that the, some of the lines are loosely held. Yeah. Uh, and yes, that can happen. It can happen on this form, because I'm afraid we've got some type here that is loose due to the fact that some of the type has been borrowed by one of my students. But uh, it shouldn't be like that. And a well-locked-up form should be perfectly secure and shouldn't move when you ink it. There we are, the type is now inked. So at this stage, the, uh, uh, the press man or the press men would take over, usually two men would work the press, and one of them, the puller, would place a sheet of paper onto two pins, which were held on part of the press called the tympan, which is a frame covered with parchment or paper designed to hold the pr- uh, paper. Over that, it flaps down a frisket, which is another frame, which has windows cut in it, which represent the pages uh, you're going to print, in this case eight pages, eight windows, uh, and the paper is held in a sandwich between the tympan and frisket. Then the, um, the puller, who's the man who works the press, grips the tympan and frisket together and folds them down onto the type, and then he turns a handle to the side of the press to operate a pulley that moves the bed of the press under the platen. And the platen is the part that actually applies the pressure through the screw. So I've done. uh, I moved the uh, the bed under the platen for the first impression. Uh, And with this press, as with most wooden presses, you have to pull twice. You have to pull on two halves of the form in order to make the impression. This was simply because a press of this size couldn't get enough power to print the whole area in one go. Right, I'll pull on the bar now, and you should hear the noise that the press makes. Right, you're really leaning into that. Yes, I, I, in fact, I'm. I'm. Although I'm pulling it hard, I'm not pulling it all the way. I just don't quite dare with this, it, as it's rather an ancient machine. Now I'm turning the handle again in order to advance the bed further.
0: Right, so you can do that second pull up. That's right. There
1: it is. Now the second pull. And this kind of noise would have been both louder and more or less constant in in a press room when the presses were working. If there were more than one, which there usually would have been, it's quite uncommon for a printing house to be so small that it only had one press. Even the smallest usually had two or three, and a big printing house might have 12 or 15 presses. Now, the puller would grab the tympan and frisk it together, lift them up, and again, you should hear a little noise here, although it'll be a modest noise. Yes, a sort of noise, which is the sound of the ink mm. pulling away from the type when you, when you lift the paper out. And, and there's the impression. Are. There we are. They wouldn't hang them out, of course. They would whip that sheet off, and that would be the first proof. It would go back to the compositor who would check it for errors. Right. And if there were mistakes, what he would have to do is to loosen off the form. Everything is held tight with wedges, which are called coins. Those would have to be loosened, mm-hmm. and any erroneous pieces of type taken out and replaced with the correct characters. Mm-hmm. Um, the most common mistake was, of course, just one character substituted for another, or put in upside down. Did, did you sense that there was a, a tolerance of
0: some degree of... Error. I mean, were they after a kind of perfectly print, printed sheet, or was...?
1: It depended a little bit on the work that was being done, because again, considering it was it was commercial work, if the publisher, who was paying the printer to produce the book, wanted good quality work, then the, it was the printer's duty to get it as, mm-hmm. as, as um, pure as they could, mm-hmm. and to make it absolutely conform to the text, the copy that they'd been given. If they were doing some sort of cheap work for um, uh, someone who'd paid them rather less to produce a a chat book or a broadsheet very quickly, they may well be much less careful and much less worried about getting everything absolutely right. Mm-hmm. So it was a, it depended a little bit on the sort of work they were doing. And there's no sense that we're really dealing with a book here at all, is
0: there? We're dealing with no. type, and then lines, and then sheets, yes. and within that pages, um, but not a thing that has a cover and is bound and
1: um, is a codex, we're dealing with no, a totally right. different form. No, what would come off the press each time was a sheet of paper with a number of pages printed on one side, and then, of course, you'd have to turn it over and print pages on the other side. And once that was done, that sheet would be put into storage while you printed another sheet. And it was only at the end of that process when you took all those sheets, folded them up, began to see a book Mm -hmm. taking shape when you put those folded sheets in sequence. Mm -hmm. Uh, And generally speaking, of course, the printer would have had nothing to do with the binding. That uh, book would have gone off in sheets to the publisher Mm -hmm. and out to booksellers, and it would have been bound for owners, for buyers of the book, and sometimes for the booksellers. Um, But printers weren't involved in binding until well into the 19th century. Mm -hmm. And what about drying the sheets? How Hmm. does that happen? Well, usually what would happen is they would try and print both sides on the same day, and then hang the sheets up to dry over uh, sort of washing lines that were stretched above the presses. And it would take overnight to dry when they came in the next day. Greeted by the smell of stale urine, they would take down. The way yeah, yes, <laughs> they, they probably got used to it. I'm afraid they probably hardened to it. Um, they would take down the sheets, put them into storage, and begin work on the next day. The final stage is what happens once yes. the printing has been um, completed. Right. Um, perhaps um, just to, we could say a little bit about the speed at which they worked. Yes. Um, the normally once they'd done the corrections and the and the um, form was ready to print. Uh, usually two men would work the press, the beater who worked the ink and the puller who pulled on the uh, bar and placed the paper in position, and between them they could print uh, an average number of 250 sheets an hour, which is really incredibly fast by mm-hmm. our standards. Um, that's one every 15 to 20 seconds. Mm-hmm. And if they were doing cheap work, they could mm-hmm. go even faster. They mm-hmm. could go up to 300 an hour, which is one every 10 seconds. That's astonishing. It is. And of course, there was a falling off of quality at that stage, but if they were being paid less to do it, then that, uh, that, that was the price one paid. And um, so they could print a normal day, it might be 12 hours, and they could print in a morning of six hours 1,500 impressions. And then in the afternoon they could print 1,500 impressions on the other side of that same sheet. So you could print really that many, 1,500 sheets on both sides in one day, just with one press. And if you had two going, of course, you could double the speed.
0: We've done the printing and we want to get our type back
1: and yes. set
0: another... Uh, some more lines and another page. What, how do we do yes. this?
1: Well, of course, many printers would have had relatively little type. They might have had enough to set the eight pages of an octavo form, uh, of two octavo forms, I should say, like this, to print a single sheet. And they might have had a little bit more, so the compositors could still be working while the printing was going on, but they wouldn't have had a vast amount. Mm. Uh, and so they would need this type in order to complete the next sheet. And so what would usually happen is once one form had been printed, it would quickly be given back, to the compositors, they would clean it with some sort of solvent to get rid of the uh, the ink as much as possible, and they would often um, scrub it with a brush as well to get out any little parts of ink that had stuck to the um, to the type. Uh, and then the type would be put back into galleys, and from galleys it would go back into the uh, into the cases um, by a process called uh, dissing distribution, uh, and that involved usually just picking up one line of type at a time, holding it in your mm-hmm. hand. Uh, rather than in a stick, Uh, and then simply lifting type from the end of that line and throwing it back into the um, case one character at a time. If we go back through to the composing room, I'll do a quick demonstration of that at a very slow speed. Okay, so we've got our line of Paul Nash. I now have the line that I said earlier in my hand, slightly, I'm afraid, falling apart due to my own... Uh, incompetence. If I had my seven years' apprenticeship, that, that wouldn't have happened. But I'm now holding it in such a way that I can get access to all the characters in the line without them, one hopes, falling out. And I simply pick up pieces of type and put them back into the case in the order they, or in the reverse order they came out. So now I'm doing spaces, and here we have Nash N A and S H literature. and then Paul. So even with my lack of experience and skill, it's much quicker than setting. Because you don't need to worry about spacing and you only need to, to deconstruct your line. You don't need to think about its construction. Yeah. Um, professional compositors would have done it very quickly. Sometimes you see um, films of old um, compositors and they really go click, 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 click around the yeah. um, case tremendously quickly.
0: And there's an amazing sense, isn't there, of the, of the type returning back to its home, ready for the next yes, iteration, it's right, ready for the next yes. kind of um, process of, uh, of composition.
1: Yes, type sort of has a life. It, I mean, it's cast, it's born. And then it lives in the case, yeah. and it, as it were, it comes out to work, mm-hmm. and it goes home at the end of the day, and then after a fairly, fairly short life, it dies. How, it how a, what is the lifespan well, of it? Well, in so. constant use, you might keep type going for a couple of years, but not much right. more than that. Right. Um, so its life is quite short, and then, of course, you have to melt it down and, and have it recast. Yeah.
0: And in terms of the, uh, the printer's investment in their, their materials... Type would be a crucial expense, particularly a specialist kind of type, I guess. If you well, want yes, to... I mean
1: any type would be costly; mm. it would be the main expense. Of course, you would have to buy presses, but they wouldn't be particularly expensive, relatively speaking. And of course, you can get a carpenter to make you one and and to make you pieces when you break a piece. Um, but the, the type itself is very expensive, yes, um, because you have to you have to buy the metal. And metallurgy was at a fairly primitive stage mm. through the 15th, 16th, 17th, and into the 18th centuries, so that um, lead, tin, and antimony, from which um, type is made were not necessarily cheap. And once you had the metal, you then had to employ someone skilled to undertake the casting process, which involved uh, holding a a mould, which again was something you had to acquire in your left hand, and pouring molten metal into it. Inside the mould was what's called a mat, a matrix, which had the the, the form of that particular letter on it. And you had to repeat the same action over and over again, casting the same character Mm -hmm. until you had a thousand or two thousand Mm -hmm. of that character then you could change your mat and cast a 1,000 or 2,000 to the next character. So it was a very long process. So it was expensive because of the metal, the skills of the person who had to be employed to do this, and you had to hire or buy a mould and mats. Mm -hmm. So most printers, as I say, didn't have a great deal of Mm type. It was was a big investment for them.
0: And what's the the status now in in, in 2014 of of the hand press and hand printing and the kind of expertise that you're showing and, and talking about. Does it, what's the future for that as a, as a way of producing text and books, do
1: you oh, think? It's interesting. I think it has a very, a very bright future because I think people are reacting very much at the moment against the digitization of book production and against the digitization of design generally, if you look at web design so far. Well, I mean, there are some very beautiful web designs, but it's intangible you can't touch it. It's very, very much a, a virtual thing. Whereas physical type is quite the opposite. And you can use physical type in, a, in a, a much more tactile way and it's a craft, it's become a craft. Anyway, mm-hmm. Of course at one time it was a profession, it wasn't a craft at all, mm-hmm. or at least it wasn't mm-hmm. chiefly a craft. But today it's very much a craft or, as with this workshop, it's, it's a, a, a kind of teaching environment. It's a way to understand how books were made mm-hmm. in the time when they were made by these simple mechanical processes. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, thanks very much, Paul. I think we better draw things to a close. And thank you, listener, for listening. We'll be back soon with more podcasts about the history of the book here at Oxford. And as we fade off into the night, we will leave you with some sounds from the hand-printing workshop at the Story Museum um, here in Oxford.